0: Welcome to My Name Is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer.
1: And I am Dorothea Bauer.
0: And this is My Name Is Not Steve.
1: We are not named Steve.
0: This is a podcast by storytellers about storytelling.
1: Do we really qualify as storytellers? I do. That's true. You are an author and a screenwriter. Award winning. So it's a storyteller. Talking about storytelling well, with no, you, an extra person. You
0: tell a lot of stories. It's just no one cares about them.
1: Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, technically, they could be called lies, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. Fabrications. <laughs> Exaggeration.
0: <laughs> All right. So, Dorothea, today we're talking about villains.
1: We are. We are talking about their power.
0: The stronger the villain, the stronger the story, and the stronger the protagonist's struggle.
1: That really is true. There have been some movies that we've seen that have been decent movies overall, but when we were thinking about this podcast and kind of mapping out what we wanted to talk about, we realized that if the villain had been better, the movie would have been incredible.
0: Give me an example.
1: So for example, uh, we could talk about the Bourne movies and the Bourne villains.
0: Okay, but before we go to that, Dorothea, we are missing some key piece of information.
1: That's true, but I was also answering your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So (laughs) I'm going to put that on you.
0: You've known me long enough to know that I set you up to fail.
1: Constantly. Right, okay. I mean, in every aspect of life. So what's your point? I guess I don't have one. Thank you. All right. All right,
0: so Neil and Pray, the Neil and Pray update.
1: The Neil and Pray update is that the book is still done. (laughs) As it was (laughs) in the past two episodes. I know,
0: but the cool thing is we got a proof copy. We did. So what is a proof copy, Dorothea?
1: A proof copy is a copy of the book that the printer sends you to make sure that everything is the way that you want it to be, that the cover is formatted correctly, that the line spacing and the indentation and all of that works out the way that you want it to. It looks beautiful and it's just fantastic.
0: It is fantastic. Aside from
1: the things we have to change to fix it.
0: (laughs) Here's what it sounds like. Ready? That's the actual book.
1: I think it's really (laughs) sweet how you're so excited to have this book in your hands because it's been on your computer for such a long time that to actually be holding it in your hands, you look like a kid on Christmas. But
0: there's something about it, you know? It's like when I handed this proof copy to your mother, her face changed. Like she looked at it and went, Oh my gosh, this thing that you've been bothering everybody about (laughs) for almost a decade. It's actually coming to pass. I mean it's, it's real. Com- As it came to pass, I wrote yes. a book. So we should
1: probably clarify why you said that.
0: Well, it was in the last episode. Just oh, listen to the last episode. Okay. You don't even remember. Do I don't know. You? You're a sad, sad person. I know. Okay, well, Like
1: father, like daughter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, so it was very cool. There are some things that we need to adjust. The line spacing between the lines is not correct, so I had to make that adjustment, which makes the book thicker, and then the spine of the cover needs to also then be thicker. So I sent that request to our book cover designer.
1: And some advice for all of you budding self-publishers is to order two copies of the proof, because one of the copies of the book that we received the printing of the cover was actually off. And had we not ordered two copies and we just received the misprinted version, we would think that there was something wrong with the actual JPEG file that we sent the printer.
0: Yeah, that's true. Now, another cool thing that happened, and I meant to mention this last time, is that I was on a very popular podcast.
1: It's not really popular anymore, though.
0: <laughs> because I was on it? Because you were on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it's the beginning of the end. Yeah, But it's called the Selmore Book Show.
1: Which is very cool.
0: It is a cool show. And it was cool that they asked me to be on it. Basically, one of the hosts was unavailable. He was traveling, I think down to our area, actually. And while he was gone, the co-host decided to ask... Um, basically, the, the show consists of some, some top news tips and then five top news stories, and they talk about those things. So what the co-host did is that he had the top contributors in the comment section and and participators in the show offline. He assigned one of those tips or questions to each one of us, and then we got to answer them. So it was kind of cool. I mean, I thought it was neat to... It's a good way, not just because I was involved, but it's a great way to get you more involved and more invested in the show. So it's a clever thing to do anyway. I was just really happy to be a part of it.
1: I think it was a really great idea. And we've always talked about how the self-publishing community is just that. It's very much a community. It's very supportive. And you've received so much help and advice from other people Online who have their own self-publishing podcasts and publish their own books and um, I think it's wonderful that we've been able to help contribute to other authors as much as they've helped contribute to your success.
0: yeah at least I hope I can you know as we go forward. So that's it uh, we have our proof book we need to get the new book cover we need to get a new proof to validate it. We also have the uh, the electronic files are ready to go and we're still we still have work to do with the marketing side and prep for the rollout. Um, hope to get that done in the next week, and then, um we'll just be prepping for the release, which is kind of exciting.
1: It's very exciting,
0: and I'm working on the second book, lost and Found, and it's annoying. <laughs>
1: so, you feel that every time you write a book? I know <laughs> that's,
0: that's true, but this is annoying. So what happens is that I kind of wrote a lot of these stories as novellas, and then we decided they need to be novels and then The beta reader feedback I got told me that I needed to clarify some of the emotional and spiritual journey of Gabby at the end of the first book. Well, I kind of layered that in the second book. So after I was done with the first book, I then had to make changes to the second book. And that altered a lot of things. And interestingly enough, one of the things that I have been trying to figure out and make stronger is the villain of the Lost and Found story. So.
1: So maybe you'll learn something by the end of today. I hope so. That
0: would be a first <laughs> from this podcast.
1: Learn something from yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I'm not a very good teacher or student, so I don't know. I don't think it's going to go well.
1: We're doing a really great job of selling your books. <laughs> I know. It's pretty <laughs> awesome.
0: Well, I want to be honest about the journey. You know, you listen to all any author at any point, they'll say, I don't know, I write stuff and I look at it and I think it's a pile of crap and then I fix it later and it ends up being pretty good. I'm in the turning a pile of crap into something good phase right now, but it is kind of frustrating.
1: It was very funny. One day I was at work and a coworker of mine, I've mentioned her before on this podcast, is also an author. And she came up and was talking to me about her writing and how it's going at the moment. And she's she's just saying... Well, I'm at the phase of my writing process where everything I write is crap and awful and I should never do this and why am I wasting my time?
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's a pretty common early phase actually. You know, you have the moment of inspiration and then you write and you think it's all cool and then you reread it and you realize it's not so great and then when you try to fix it, it sucks and then after it sucks, you start to make it better again.
1: So it's a very, very fun process.
0: Well, it's fun for you to watch me and and listen to my <laughs> long complaints about the process.
1: I enjoy it. Yeah, I know. Sincerely. That's why I do it. I do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, villains Dorothea.
1: Well, I already mentioned the born villains, so we should probably pick up on that.
0: All right. So the born villains, what's interesting about the born villains? It's kind of like a nebulous villain. It's like the program he was a part of is the villain, you know what I mean? But the people that have been in charge of it during his time in it kind of changes and evolves as you find out and you go up the food chain or whatever. But there's never been like a really hard and fast, here's the bad guy. The bad guy has been the government or the program or the corrupt leaders or something. So it's interesting because they're really, really good movies. But the villain in and of itself is not that great. And so it's surprising that they're as effective as they are considering the villain's kind of weak.
1: I think the saving grace of those films is that he is the villain of his own story most of the time. Oh, yeah, that's true. And... He's kind of dealing with the consequences from what he's done and what he doesn't remember doing. And then you have the actual bad guys who are responsible for that that are coming after him as well. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of layers in that. But I think that if you're to identify the villain versus the protagonist, the villain outside of Jason Bourne is not very strong.
0: Right. Where if you have a well, one of the most clear cut villains in history is Darth Vader, right? Of course. So, I mean, that's a great example of having a very well-defined villain that makes the protagonist struggle even more. And one of the key aspects of a good villain is that they're usually smarter, stronger, faster, better than the protagonist.
1: And they push the protagonist to be stronger, faster, and better to defeat them, which is more interesting to watch than a protagonist who is all those things already.
0: Yeah, kind of like Liam Neeson in those early Star Wars movies, which we talked about last time.
1: Liam Neeson is is his own is his <laughs> own beast though. I feel like if you ignore Star Wars as I always do Um, (laughs) Liam Neeson's movies you just expect him to be this intense guy and I don't really know if I could respect him anymore if he lost a fight in a movie well that's ever since
0: (laughs) Taken he's made like Taken over and over again in different formats different times they keep renaming it but it's basically him going around kicking ass and shooting people
1: I actually saw someone online wrote this whole thing about Liam Neeson how he was the voice of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia and he was the voice of a god in another movie as well so he became a god in two religions in two different stories plus he trained darth vader and batman and like he just (laughs) lists all of these things that liam neeson has done as his characters in different movies and he's pretty intense
0: yeah now he just kills people yeah out of vengeance um that's a good villain darth vader obviously but another one that's recent is um snow president snow from the hunger games
1: President Snow is such a fascinating character to me because when you read the books, he is the only character that is completely honest all the time, aside yeah. from PETA. When you think about Katniss, she's playing the game of the Hunger Games. So is Haymitch, so is Gale, so is a lot of the different characters, President Coin and Plutarch Heavensby. There are a lot of characters that put on a facade because that's what the world needs. And in order to defeat the bad guy and in order to win the war and bring peace and all of those things, you have to play your part. But President Snow is so interesting because he's completely honest about what he's doing. I remember there was a scene in the book That really disturbed me because Katniss was talking to President Snow and she was asking him if he was responsible for certain events that happened based on his history of the way that he has sacrificed, quote unquote, children for the Hunger Games. She asked him if he was responsible for other events that happened. And he very calmly told her that he never had a problem killing children if it suited his needs. And that was so disturbing to me. But he was completely honest about it, and that just made it even more unsettling.
0: Yeah, what's really evil about evil is that it's comfortable being so. And what's really great about President Snow's character is that he understands he's the oppressor, and he understands the structure and the system he's put into place, and he understands the sacrifice required of people under his control, and he's okay with all of that because he keeps it all working. And the fact that he's like, yeah, yeah. I don't mind killing kids because it keeps the lights on, so to speak, you know, in the whole government. It's pretty awesome. And what surprised me is that he was so powerful in the book, it was hard for me to think he'd be worse in the movie, but Donald Sutherland is so good as him in the movie.
1: I was actually concerned when I saw the first Hunger Games, when I saw that he had been cast, I was a little worried that he wasn't going to be very good in that role, because I just didn't see him being President Snow, and then I watched the movie, and- it was completely disturbing. I got chills. He was so unsettling. It was fantastic.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite scenes is when they meet in the um the second book or the second movie. And he says, let's agree not to lie to one another. And so he and Katniss are blatantly honest from that point forward, which is just such a great thing to do, because especially a character like Katniss, who is trying to fight the powers that be to honestly state one that what they would like to do and how afraid they could be at the you know what I mean it's just so brilliant to do that because there's no there's no hidden layers at that point. it's It's pure evil against pure rebellion like face to face.
1: A trend in modern stories that I'm really enjoying is the nature of power in villainy nowadays. For a long time, the nature of power had to do with what skills you had. I'm better or stronger than you, or I have more armies at my command, and therefore I have more power over you. But now, villains often have more information than the other people, which is more dangerous. You wouldn't think it would be, but it's much more dangerous to have information that can't get out or that would risk a lot of things, and for a bad guy to have that. And I think it's so interesting to see how they play with those elements.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And one of my favorite, favorite villains ever is Gary Oldman in The Professional.
1: Oh, so amazing. He's so creepy. So creepy.
0: Here's how well the screenwriter set up how bad of a villain Gary Oldman's character is.
1: Because he doesn't look intimidating.
0: No, he looks kind of disheveled and he's he's like takes drugs and he's a narcotics cop and he's corrupt. But here's the worst thing. The first time you see him, he and his corrupt crew of cops are standing outside of an apartment door and they're about to go in and wreak havoc on someone who was stealing from them. And he's there listening to music on headphones and he's taking drugs and he's just really weird. But you know he's scary and you know everyone should fear him because one of his corrupt cops is a massive man who is terrified of this little guy who's his boss.
1: He does not want to interrupt him because he has bad news and he knows nothing good will come of that. So you see this guy who's very intimidating, shuddering at the thought of approaching Gary Oldman's character.
0: Yeah. And everyone is afraid to tell him what they have to tell him before they go do something horrendous. And it was just one of the most powerful ways to introduce a villain because if someone that is so much stronger than you is afraid of this guy, just how scary must this guy be? And he is really, really scary in that movie. It's awesome.
1: I like The Professional a lot. I think it's a very good film.
0: There's so many things about that we we won't go into, but the way they establish Natalie Portman's character is awesome. The fact that a hitman is the hero is awesome. I mean, it's just great.
1: There are so many scenes in that movie that, again, we shouldn't go into, but just the way the story unfolds, Is shocking and really, really well done. So check it out if you haven't seen it.
0: Yep. Other good villains have been obviously the Joker, right? And the Dark Knight. Just, I mean, epic. What's so funny is you go through this list and you're thinking every time we bring up one really great, epically awesome villains, you go, that's such an awesome character, right? Immediately like, oh, that guy was amazing. Or that actor did a great job. So when you think of Darth Vader, it's in your brain, right? You think of Heath Ledger as the Joker, it's in your brain.
1: And I think there's an element of being unstable to those villains that makes them so terrifying because you don't know what they're going to do.
0: Right. They have no morals and they're unpredictable. It's like the worst of the worst combination. And Heath Ledger's performance is just, it's amazing as the Joker. Another one, which I think is great because it's an 80s movie, which is a lot of guns and yippie ki and whatnot, is Hans Gruber. Now, Hans Gruber is a perfect example from Die Hard of someone who's smarter, better, faster, stronger, all that, right? More prepared. You have John McClane, the cop who's ill-prepared, wasn't even supposed to be in this building, forced to take on Hans Gruber and his crew, and he's planned, he's meticulous, he has all the knowledge you were talking about, about how the FBI works and how that he's going to use that to his advantage, and he's ruthless, and he kills people without even thinking about it because hes they get in the way of his end goal. Again, perfect example of he is so prepared and so meticulous and so evil that it requires John McClane to overcome all these things, even when he's not wearing shoes and uh, loses his shirt at some point. But he's, um, it's just cool that that's, that's a perfect example of setting a villain that's very much stronger than the protagonist, because then the protagonist has to overcome so much more just to compete with them.
1: And then you have movies like Die Hard too. Yeah, that's...
0: One of the worst movies ever. Now, one of the interesting things about Die Hard 2 was its varying ways of using the F bomb.
1: Yeah, it honestly didn't make sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, there were times where they would use the F bomb. And so here's what happened My daughter was in college, and I was going to say, Well, you should see Die Hard 2 because there's some good scenes in it, and whatnot. And I hadn't seen it since it was in a theater. So I'm watching this with my daughter and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I apologize. This movie is so (laughs) offensive. But then it became a joke because they were using the F-bomb in ways that... I don't know, It like grammatically, it didn't make any sense.
1: It's basically like they took all of their lines and wrote them down on a board, and then they picked different grammatical terms like subject, verb, adjective, and put them in a bowl. And they looked at every sentence and drew from the bowl, and whatever they drew, whether it was the adjective in the sentence, they changed it to the F-bomb.
0: Right. It would be like, my sentence is, I'm going to make a peanut butter sandwich. And the Die Hard 2 version is, I'm going to make an effing nutter sandwich.
1: Exactly. (laughs) For no reason. That's what (laughs) happens. It sounds like we're exaggerating, but we're not.
0: Nope. Okay. So anyway, um, Die Hard, awesome, awesome villain.
1: But another problem with movie sequels tends to be that the second villain doesn't always top the first villain. If you look at the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, or do they have four now? They have four. they have four. But if you look at the original three movies uh, with Keira Knightley's character and Orlando Bloom's character... Jack Sparrow versus Captain Barbossa was such an interesting story because it had to do with betrayal and there were so many different levels of piracy and of relationships and of what is right versus what is wrong. Then you have Orlando Bloom's character, Jack Turner versus the Commodore, who's a very honorable man, but he plays the villain because he's against the protagonist, who is William Turner's character. So there are so many different elements to that that make it a really very entertaining story. But then they followed that up with Davy Jones, who, though he presented a greater threat plot-wise to the characters and to their story, at the end of the day, he didn't really hold any kind of emotional resonance.
0: No, and I think part of that is twofold. I think it wasn't written exceptionally well. It was like a great idea that wasn't well executed. And worse than that, the special effects got in the way of all those movies. It was hard for me to care about a guy who was a squid face. I, I don't know. I did. I wasn't threatened by that. I was more, it was curious.
1: And the two sequels as well were really one movie, yeah, it was, which it did was, not help.
0: You know how I love
1: <laughs> movies that are divided into two parts. Yeah, we're big it's fans so of that. It's so good but, and entertaining.
0: But the Barbosa thing you bring up is really interesting because another really good villain is oftentimes a close friend of the protagonist, the one who—and I love this term in movies—went rogue, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. I mean, Barbosa and Jack Sparrow were partners. And the fact that Jack Sparrow was betrayed, and then they become arch enemies is even cooler, because there's a layer of history and of past friendship and past experiences that kind of gets in the way of them actually fighting against each other makes it more heartbreaking.
1: I just have a quick sidebar. I actually know someone who used to work for the CIA. And we always joke about how there are a lot of CIA movies where an agent goes rogue. And that's very entertaining, but the CIA needs to work on their HR policy. And so I asked this friend of mine who used. To work for the cia i said so is the cia as evil in reality as they are in almost every form of entertainment and he did not give me a direct answer so hmm. take from that what you will <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he uh he talked a lot about different policies and stuff like that but it was a joking question just for people who are taking this seriously i said it with a sense of humor and he answered it seriously so yeah.
0: Another cool little personal aspect about Pirates of the Caribbean. I'd mentioned Jenny and Jeff before in the movie Ready Will and Enable. Yes. Well, Isaac is the big black guy on the first in the first movie, one of the ghost crew, and he was in Ready Will and Enable. And he's a really yeah. nice guy and tall and just very funny and nice, but you know, when you stand next to him you're like, "Wow, I'm very very small small man." <laughs> But anyway, that was kind of cool to see someone who was in a low-budget movie that we did in Something So Big, so that was pretty awesome. That's awesome. Now, we talk about Hans Gruber and his suaveness. One thing that Hitchcock liked to do, and he did this specifically in North by Northwest, is he took the villain concept and actually broke it into three people. So if you look at North by Northwest, you have Cary Grant, who's trying to prove his innocence. And then you have James Mason, who is basically like the Hans Gruber sort of person. He's smart, classy, could you know go to cocktail parties and everyone would love to see him. And then you have Martin Landau, who plays James Mason's right-hand man. And he's also suave, and but kind of dangerous and a little creepy. And then after that, you also have just a thug who just is the the muscle of the group. So it was interesting to me that Hitchcock chose to separate the villain character into three different characters, kind of like three personalities of the same person.
1: Now, we've talked about a lot of villains, but the overall point that we've been trying to make in our discussion about villains versus the protagonists in the films is that the villain has to push the protagonist forward. That's the whole point. And one of the best villains in that respect is actually not human.
0: Right. And it's scary,
1: incredibly terrifying with the aid of John Williams use of two keys (laughs) on a piano. (laughs) The movie Jaws has one of the greatest villains and is one of the best movies. I really, really enjoy it. When you think about that movie, you really don't think of it as having a great villain because it's a shark. A shark is not a villain, it has no motivation, it just eats, it's hungry.
0: Yeah, but that's why it's so dangerous, which is great.
1: And also, when the protagonist has a fear of boats and going on the water and has to go deep into the ocean to find this man-eating shark that's terrorizing his town, that kind of pushes you forward.
0: You know, it reminds me of two things. First is that alien is also like that. The alien is not human, obviously, but it's just doing what it does and it's dangerous as hell. What's interesting from a writing perspective, and you and I have talked about this, Dorothea, is that when you're formatting your story, you kind of see where it has to end. And then the first thing you do is you make your character adverse to any of that. So, for example, if you know that the bad guy's a shark and you have to kill them on the water, well, the best thing you can do is give your protagonist a fear of water, right? That kind of thing. You, you look for wherever they need to end up. As you're defining your main character, you just make them polar opposite of where they need to be at the end because that gives their journey that much more of a a longer and harder distance to go.
1: I do remember hearing about a story where that didn't entirely work out well in the original draft for the writers of this particular movie. When the creators of Toy Story were drafting the film, the character of Woody, he went through...
0: (laughs) So awful.
1: (laughs) He went through a huge change before he reached your screen. When the writers were working on the script, they realized that at the end of the film, Woody needed to be selfless. That was the point. And that was his journey. So, ipso facto, at the beginning, he has to be selfish. The problem was, he was Awful. He was a jerk. <laughs> he was such a jerk. We actually saw clips from the original draft of that that Tom Hanks recorded. I know, which
0: is amazing. Which is
1: <laughs> unbelievable. Of Woody saying things like, No one asked for your opinion, Springweenie. Like, just <laughs> He's so he was rude. terrible. He's
0: so rude. He
1: was terrible. And then that character had to evolve. And what they ended up going with was Woody was not a jerk as long as he was the favorite toy. When right. someone threatened him being the favorite toy, then that negative, <laughs> negative side but of came out. But they just started
0: out with him being a total awful. To- toy a-hole. I mean, <laughs> it was just so funny. And the fact that they got to the point where they actually recorded Tom Hanks saying these like just awful and stupid lines, you're like, wow, they actually got that far into the process before realizing, eh, I don't know if this is going to work.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine how awful children would be if they saw that movie and then acted like Woody?
0: <laughs> That'd be great, the After hero. the
1: movie came out, because <laughs> he's the hero of the film. That's awesome. And children definitely, as you know very well from Raising Me, act the way Disney tells them to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, another a good villain also needs to apply in comedies. If you look at Ocean's Eleven, Andy Garcia plays the casino owner that they are robbing. And he's really good because he's threatening and scary, and he's he's ominous, and it's great. And to your point about the whole pirates thing... And they got much weaker villains in Oceans 12 and 13. So in the sequels, it was really hard once again to capture that same sort of villainy.
1: And that's definitely true because I've seen Oceans 12 and 13 and cannot remember those movies.
0: Yeah, they're, they are forgettable.
1: <laughs> for the life of me, we talked about this for a few <laughs> minutes. You told me what happened and I was like, I believe you. I remember sitting down to watch this movie. I have no memory of it. Yeah. yeah. It just went <laughs> in one ear out the other.
0: Now there are also movies that have been successful that just don't have good villains, and and I'm not saying in a born supremacy or born movie way. I'm talking just bad villains. For example, you know Indiana Jones had good villains in the, especially in the first one, right? You had Belloc and all that, a, a compatriot kind of like what we talked about, not so much a friend who betrayed him, but someone who's who's much like him, who has been corrupted by power, and so that was a good villain. But when you got to the Crystal Skull movie, which had so many problems in so many ways. <laughs> the villain of that movie was such a waste. I, so here they have this great opportunity. So in the 50s, the Russians were big into trying to find ESP and psychic powers and whatnot. And Kate Blanchett plays the head of the Russian psychic group or whatever. And so they're after this crystal skull because of the potential psychic powers that they could employ. Now, what would have been great is if her character actually had psychic powers. or any powers whatsoever or was more dangerous than just as a swordsman. But they didn't. So they have this great villain that should be, I mean, how much more concerning would it be for Indiana Jones if your villain could actually read your mind or if your villain could actually make you do things against your will, that would be awesome.
1: It goes back to the power of information.
0: Right. And instead they chose to make her in charge of this department Yet have no inherent ability to do anything at any point except use the sword.
1: And I'm going to spoil this movie because I have no respect for it. And- <laughs>
0: <laughs> at least you're honest about it.
1: At the end of the film, they basically pull the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and everyone who's bad disintegrates. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. So. <laughs> and
0: uh, and then she makes a stupid decision to try to meld minds with these alien dudes, and her head explodes. Yeah. Or do, melts. Do the or other something. people
1: disintegrate, or is it just her?
0: I don't know. They're, that's a problem that I don't we know. don't know. Right? By then
1: I was yeah. texting. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, what's interesting is most Bond movies, especially the old ones, have had good villains like Dr. No or Goldfinger or whatever, but Casino Royale really doesn't. I mean, they have the guy with the bleeding eye, mm-hmm. but he wasn't really a strong villain. It was more of the, maybe because it's an origin story, you don't need some sort of super villain because the story is about the introduction of the character, but I don't know. It could have been a lot stronger, I thought.
1: Why would you need a good villain? It's only the reason they start down their path.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. But as we know, that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, look at our, our last example, Dorothea. One of your favorite movies, Man of Steel.
1: You know, the interesting thing about Man of Steel is that I appreciate this from a marketing perspective. I saw that movie in the theaters three times, and I don't like it at all. But the score is fantastic, and Henry Cavill is beautiful.
0: Yeah, that's
1: pretty much, <laughs> that's pretty much why I saw it.
0: <laughs> but you know what's really a shame is that that villain, General Zod, had all the makings of being a really good villain, but the movie is such a mess. One of the things that makes General Zod potentially an awesome villain is that they are genetically created to do a certain thing in that society. And he is genetically created to protect the race of super people, Kryptonians or whatnot. So you take that immovable position. General Zod has to terraform Earth and kill everybody because he's genetically required to do so. And they never make that clear enough until it's far too late. And if they would have made that clear earlier, his entire threat would have been far greater. And then if you have this God-against-God climactic fight scene where surprisingly all the humans are out of town in the city, (laughs) then um, it would have been even more powerful because of the inevitability of Superman having to attack one of the lone survivors of his planet because this guy is genetically required to destroy everyone on Earth. That's an awesome potential that was unrealized because the movie was a freaking mess.
1: There are two really great lessons that you can learn from Man of Steel. The first is that your story has to be logical. You can have really cool elements happen. And that's what I think the writers of Man of Steel wanted. They wanted these cool scenes and cool story points to happen. So they just wrote them in there but they didn't make any sense from a logical perspective like there are so many things that happen in that movie that i'm just like why why is this happening so you have to look at your story and say yes i want this to happen but does it make sense and if it doesn't you either have to remove it and save it for another story or you have to find a way to make it work in a way that's not ridiculous
0: it drives me nuts when movie directors don't care about logic it's like, well, the reason you're making the movie is to tell a story. And the story should make sense. Zack Snyder, Tim Burton. Tim Burton refused certain logical points in the second Batman Returns movie that would have explained everything and would have made the movie a lot more satisfying. Except I eh, didn't want to really do that. I'm like, why? There's no, There's no reason a creator of a story... Abandons logic while telling the story.
1: My favorite (laughs) example of that is in the second Transformers movie, (laughs) which is just terrible. And Optimus Prime dies. At the beginning of that movie. What? I know. So Shia LaBeouf is trying to bring him back and save him and they have to do this whole journey to get there. But the thing is, is that about 30 minutes into the movie, they come across this like shard of glass or something that can bring any Transformer back to life. Except Optimus Prime, evidently, because they didn't use it on him. They used it on some Decepticon to lead them to this other thing that can bring Optimus Prime back to life after Shia LaBeouf visits Transformer Heaven, because robots definitely have that.
0: Well, then the movie would have been like 10 minutes long.
1: And how much better would that movie have been (laughs) were it 10 minutes?
0: Yeah. Michael Bay, what were you thinking? All the explosions in the world, and you probably have all of them. Uh, will not make up for something as lame as that.
1: So lesson number one, make sure your story makes sense logically. If it doesn't, it's really going to bother people. Or
0: have a lot of explosions.
1: Yeah, one or the other. The second lesson that you can learn from Man of Steel isn't from the story, but is from how the movie was created. You have to trust your story. What I think happened with Man of Steel was that the vision that Zack Snyder had was very specific and the film studio didn't want exactly what he was proposing, so they limited him. A lot of times that works out really well, but his vision was so specific and needed to be that way that I think either they needed to hire a different director or they should have let him do what he wanted to do.
0: Yeah, and are you talking about the gods thing? Yes. So Zack Snyder talks about in a lot of the Japanese movies that he likes, he likes the stories where gods attack each other. And just like the old stories from Roman Greek mythology, when that happens, humanity takes the brunt of that fight. And that's what he originally wanted to do, was that really, and if you look at it, you know, Zod and, and Superman are gods comparatively to us. And so, yeah, there would have been a lot of death and dismemberment and bloodshed of the human race while these two gods kind of figured out what was going on. But obviously the studio didn't want that. So that's why suddenly buildings full of people were empty.
1: Well, and the consequence of that too is that as we were talking about when the movie first came out, there's no reason anyone on earth would trust Superman after that battle.
0: Yeah. And not only that, but what villain, what possible villain is going to be strong enough? We talk about the problems with the sequels and you can't have another villain. What is some human bald guy, Lex Luthor, going to be a threat? To a god, really?
1: Well, I don't know. We've got Ben Affleck playing Batman, so wow, well, that's gonna everything. be great. Actually,
0: they're doing the Justice League. I think they're starting I the know. Justice League out of this. But
1: another good lesson is to plan your stories. DC's trying to catch up with Marvel, but Marvel had a plan at the beginning, and an insane plan. <laughs> and DC did not. So that's another good lesson. If you are writing a series of stories and you want to bring in different elements, you have to plan that in advance
0: yeah yeah so in the gabby wells stories there is a good villain threat in that book which requires gabby to do a lot of things she doesn't want to do so in that respect i think it's really successful we always try to take these things and make it part of real life so i'm trying to think of a villain story you know i actually included this story in the first gabby wells novel so um except it happens to the dad but when i was in like middle school this kid wanted to beat me up and uh I didn't want to be beaten up.
1: (laughs) I can't imagine why.
0: Yeah. A lot of reasons that (laughs) most people would find obvious. But anyway, so I didn't want to be beat up. And I literally said to the guy, I said, listen, man, do you think I'm a jerk? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I think you're a jerk, too. And he's like, what? And I'm like, so listen, after you beat me up, none of that's going to (laughs) change. And he was like, what? Like, it totally confused him that I was saying, look, I'm still going to think you're a jerk after you beat me up. Probably more so. Right? (laughs) So he kind of looked at me and he'd never been challenged like intellectually on a on just beating some kid up for no reason because I didn't do anything. I didn't as we've established in previous podcasts, <laughs> I never did anything. <laughs> anyway, so it was really funny because he looked at me really confused and and I kinda talked him out of kicking my ass that day.
1: So you know what I would have done? Hmm. I would have beat him up.
0: Well, that's because Boom. you've had like Taekwondo <laughs> MMA training. Yeah, you're a lot more scarier than I was. <laughs> You know, and obviously the greatest story of all Satan is the villain for a lot of these things, which I think is funny because in the true story of of angels, demons, and whatnot, Satan already lost that's the best thing. We come into the story after he's already lost the battle, so he's just kind of like, I don't know, trying to rape and pillage before he leaves town, kind of thing is really what's left. But I always get a kick out of these stories that have God versus Satan. It's like, uh, no. God created Satan or, well, Lucifer. Uh, Lucifer rejected God, was renamed Satan, and uh, God was never, ever in danger from his own creation, ever. No more than he's in danger from me. So anyway, I just find that funny because you see it in movies all the time. You see the the villain being Satan or the and what I really love and I find humorous, I don't love because it's true, I love because it's humorous, is you'll see movies that will use Catholic imagery and Catholic teaching to put a person in a no win situation, but they don't use Catholic teaching to get him out of it. For example, I really like the movie Constantine actually with Keanu Reeves, but it's a guy who committed a sin so grievous that he was destined to go to hell. So before he goes to hell, he's trying to excise as many demons and send them to hell first, right? But they never talk about, like, salvation or how that can easily be turned around. So it's just kind of funny to me that the ultimate villain is oftentimes Satan, but they never use the ultimate victor as, like, a solution.
1: Well, I think the reason they do that is partially because they're uneducated about Catholic theology. But I think the other reason is that because... You can't stop God. It's like the easiest battle ever. God says no, and then everyone disperses.
0: Right. Like, one of God's (laughs) options was to simply think Satan out of existence. Yeah. You know what? I decided you were a mistake, and poof. And you're gone. Right. But he didn't, so... Yeah, no battle.
1: We've actually seen several paranormal investigation shows, right? And one of the things they always do, my dad's laughing because I put quotes around paranormal investigation, but we've seen several of those shows. And one of the things they do is whenever they feel like a demon is there, they always say, in the name of Jesus Christ, leave this place. Because according to Catholic theology, demons can't stay in a place if you excise them in the name of the Lord. They genuinely can't stay.
0: Right. I mean, that was in the Bible with Jesus doing it and the apostles doing it and so forth
1: so from a story perspective that's not very interesting if you go in the name of jesus christ get out
0: and they're like well i guess i don't have a choice now and scene
1: <laughs> story over
0: it'd be like a 10 minutes transformers movie
1: you know there is something that i do that you find very funny that i will share with the rest of the world we had salt blessed um when we had our house blessed and we'll use it when we're cooking <laughs> And so sometimes, when I'm cooking and I, I'm pouring salt into the pot or the pan or whatever, I'll like take some in my hands and like just taste it and be like, "Well, still not possessed today's a good day,
0: <laughs> so you can bless water and salt, and because salt sticks around longer, it can be more powerful in this angelic battle and this priest was there for an exorcism and he said that if you put holy salt in someone that is possessed they will immediately vomit it out so that's what my daughter's talking about It's like oh i didn't vomit or convulse
1: still not possessed (laughs) win win
0: (laughs) all right so dorothea spoiler alert
1: spoiler alert
0: Okay, so what is it? This is yours. This is all yours.
1: This didn't really evolve out of analysis, as most of our spoilers do. It just kind of was a gut instinct that I had that turned out to be right.
0: I have seen it more than once, so it is a valid spoiler alert.
1: When your protagonist is tasked with protecting someone, that's their whole objective, is to make sure that this one person gets out alive and safe and okay, and that person is injured at the beginning... In most cases, they're either going to die or they're the bad guy. Why? Because they've orchestrated this whole thing where the person has to protect them and then they come to save them and then they get all this information because they trust each other and it's very, very convoluted.
0: So it's all part of a master plan of some sort.
1: It's all part of my evil plan. Well, of course. To take over the world. That's
0: different. (laughs) And ongoing. So, yeah, we've seen this. We saw it in person of interest. And I will say that the very first spoiler alert that we've done, I have seen it so many times. The one where if you name an assistant, they're the bad guy. Oh, my gosh. I see it over and over and over again.
1: It's really irritating. Please,
0: people, think of something else.
1: Or just don't name people.
0: Right. Make it a surprise.
1: I mean, an assistant can come in the room without being given a name. And the interesting thing that a lot of cop shows do, and it's so frustrating, is that they name the assistant- but they interview a lot of people and they don't give all the people they interview names. So just let the assistant be one of the people that remain unnamed until the end when you find out they're the bad guy. Yeah,
0: that would make it all better.
1: Or come up with another bad guy.
0: That would make it all better. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dorothea, villains, villainy, evil.
1: Protagonists. Bad guys. Protagonists.
0: (laughs) What? (laughs) What?
1: The whole point of this was the effect of villains on protagonists. And so, that makes them sound I'd, really high-pitched and weak. to your- <laughs> throw them in there. Well, right now the villains are more powerful. Eventually.
0: <laughs> you know what? You've been well- <laughs> full of crap since you were a little girl. As soon as you could start talking, you go, but dad, see, I wasn't misbehaving. I was thinking about the potential possibilities of love in the universe.
1: I have a degree in spinning crap. Thank you very much. Well, that's true. That's true. You
0: took that innate ability and turned it into a degree and a career.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's really impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. And we are- I love how you just breeze past me calling myself impressive. <laughs> well,
0: I don't want to invest too much time on that. So, Dorothea, we are actually recording this on Easter Sunday. We are. Yeah. Our schedule got a little messed up because of the holy week. So we're doing this on Easter Sunday, and we wanna wish everybody a very happy Easter, even though when you hear this, it will be after Easter.
1: But we're still in the Easter season. That's true,
0: when does the Easter season end?
1: Pentecost, Catholic theology.
0: And you're singing again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've been singing for like four days now, (laughs) I can't stop.
0: (laughs) It's true, you are in the church choir, that has something to do with it. All right, Dorothea, so another episode in the books.
1: Excellent. So thank you guys for joining us. If you would like, please leave a comment in the comment section below or rate and review us on iTunes. We want more people to listen to this. I don't know why they should, but we (laughs) want them to. So (laughs) please encourage them to do so.
0: (laughs) Also, if your name is Steve and you would like to defend it, if you can, then email us and let us know. Also, we would love to talk about stuff that you want us to talk about. So if you have a subject about storytelling that you would like us to chat about please let us know again you can comment or email us at contact us at sunlightpress, s-o-n-l-i-g-h-t press.com
1: thanks for joining us and we will talk to you guys next time
0: What's so today i was the villain dad
1: am i always the villain you're always the villain Gosh,
0: parenthood is so awesome <laughs> <laughs> all right see you everybody
1: bye